0: Welcome to the Alfred Health Emergency Podcast and we're back today to talk about COVID or COVID. And um, I have with me Associate Professor Jared O'Reilly and uh, Dr. Rob Mitchell. Welcome, guys. Yeah. Hi, Mike. And hi, Rob.
1: Uh, hi, Mike. Hi, Jared. Good to be back. Yep.
0: And we're going to talk about uh, the results of our first few weeks of the covid quality improvement project. And it's fair to say it's been some interesting times in Australia. Uh, The curve appears to be flattening, which um, we're very grateful for after looking at the experiences of other places in the world. Um, And we're in a position where we have taken some data from our our own organisation and we are actually starting to um, get some other organisations on board with the COVID quality improvement project. Um, and given that the system is actually not seeing a huge amount of, um, of positive cases of COVID, which we're very grateful for, um, the question sort of lies around what the utility of this may be now and really where we're going with things. Um, Rob, you've just come off a clinical shift today. Um, and uh, I suppose the question begs, what, what is the state of play of, um, of the COVID situation on the floor right now?
1: It's a good question, Mike, and I think, uh, as you've already mentioned, we are in a vastly different position to what we suspected a month ago. I mean, I I thought, um, you know, I think we all thought that we'd be, you know, talking about uh, an overwhelming burden of COVID patients presenting to to the EEDs that we work out. Um, and captured in this, um, you know, research and quality improvement project. But that's really not the case. I mean, Gerard uh, in a moment will probably talk about the um, the data that's just been published from our first two weeks of the COVID registry. But in brief, you know, um, among 240 cases who um, met testing criteria in our ED, there are only um, 11 positives. Um, I think one of the things we can take away um, from from this essentially descriptive exercise exercise first of all is that despite the number of confirmed cases being relatively low, there are still a large number of um, patients who meet um, testing criteria or meet the criteria for a suspected case so in in our in our data set in the in the fourteen day study period, there were fifteen hundred and eight presentations to our Aed and 240 of those, that 16% um, were tested. Um, and as those listeners in Victoria, uh, Australia will know, our testing criteria subsequently broadened. Um, so that, uh, that percentage has grown further um, such that, um, you know, there is now a significant proportion of ED attendees who are being uh, tested for COVID. And while we are in the incredibly fortunate position that we're seeing uh, very few Confirmed cases and very few um, uh, sick patients with with COVID, particularly those requiring, you know, respiratory report, um, uh, support or admission to the ICU. Um, the, the the burden of suspected cases is you know significant, and I've experienced that in my shift today. You know, one of the challenges is meeting the infection prevention and control requirements, um, which is you know a, a, a real. Um, battle, I think, as the testing criteria broadens. How do we meet the needs of these patients, but also um, protect uh, staff members uh, and importantly, preserve flow through the hospital? Um, I think we, you know, this is, I mean, in one sense, it's a great problem to have, um, uh, but it really requires constant uh, attention and rapid turnaround of testing times, so that you can remove isolation requirements as soon as patients, um, you know, meet meet criteria or clearance criteria, such that they don't need to be isolated anymore.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting observation. It's something that certainly I've been privy to, um, having uh, done some work with our ED leadership team over the last few weeks. That a lot of the work in the hospital is um, is still around that burden um, of. Uh, COVID testing and and post-testing isolation uh, is putting significant burdens on a system which is not um, overwhelmed at the moment, thankfully. But as things get back to um, some state of normality in terms of patient arrivals into the hospital, I can only assume that, um, that those patients who were, for all intents and purposes, treating as COVID positive for those first um, up to 24 plus hours in the hospital um, will continue to create ongoing burden and potential source for access block down the track. W- what are your thoughts, Jared? Yeah, it's it's a big issue and our results
2: paper, this preliminary results paper, really um, put the focus on what uh, a patient looks like that needs a COVID test rather than what a patient looks like when they're COVID positive from a test. So as Rob was saying, if you'd imagine, uh, ordinarily our department might see 200 patients a day, um, but in recent weeks and certainly in the first two weeks of April, according to these results, it was 100 patients a day. And out of those 100 patients a day, 16 per day were tested and isolated for COVID. And less than one a day were COVID positive uh, at some point in a care, their care. So that it's, a, it's a very small proportion that were COVID positive, but we're treating everyone as being potentially COVID. Um, so we're testing appropriately, as is everybody uh, around the country, I'm sure. Um, but, it, but it's a big volume of testing at the moment really to ensure and protect uh, our health services from uh, undetected uh, COVID-positive patients being in the health service or being discharged to the community.
0: Now, I know you're um, a big fan of the table one, um, and I'm just looking through that myself. And is there anything else in the numbers that you can take out of um, of this as potential early learnings? I think uh, the
2: numbers were uh, consistent with what one might expect with a study that's Um, got some fairly clear criteria on who's being tested, which have moved a little bit, as we know, uh, since the 14th of April. But for the first two weeks of April, most patients uh, in this study sample had shortness of breath or had cough or had subjective fever. Uh, Few of them, in fact, uh, had any overseas travel in the previous month or any contact with a confirmed case uh, of the overall group of patients that were tested. There was a small number, uh, again, of the overall number of patients tested that uh, had fever or hypoxia or hypotension. These were the main findings of the overall group, and uh, there are 11 patients, just 5% uh, of patients, which is an important number but relatively small, that required mechanical ventilation in the ED, and a similar number, 12 or 5% of the overall population that were tested Uh, died whilst in hospital. If we then looked, and it's very difficult to make any inferences given how few COVID-positive patients there were at 11, being 5% of those that were tested, but we can look at them and see that most of that group had actually had some overseas travel in the previous 28 days, not surprisingly, in the first two weeks of April as a source of infection. Most of them, or they'd had contact uh, with a confirmed case. Interestingly, and perhaps hypothesis generating and perhaps not uh, easy to measure, all of those who tested positive for COVID, uh, being those 11 patients, uh, had fatigue as one of their presenting complaints. None of them had fever, objectively, on examination. And so these were the things that were seen. But again, it's very difficult. We'd need more numbers over a period of time and from more sites, ideally, uh, to be uh, able to make any inferential conclusions on what the COVID patient looks like compared to the non-COVID patient that's being tested for COVID-19.
0: Now, we've had um, a number of these patients um, come into us, I know, from other... um institutions such as um, residential aged care facilities, but also there's this cohort who have returned from overseas who've been um, furloughed, for want of a better word, in uh, hotels um, and isolated in those places. Um, have you seen any um, anything in the data that suggests that those patients may also represent an ongoing high risk? Again, it's uh, so I think
2: that remains a possibility and that's hypothetical at the moment. There's nothing in the data to uh that's focused on those patients in particular. So for the first two weeks of April, we were looking particularly um, at, uh, we were certainly asking questions as to whether people had been overseas. Uh, less focused on the, the quarantine hotel aspect, which uh, be, came to the fore more so, perhaps in the second half of April, certainly in the, in the Melbourne context. So we don't have any clear results on those patients and how they might have differed from the other COVID-tested patients.
0: And is it possible, do you think, um, based on the way that uh, the data is being collected, that we are missing many patients or that um, the, the forms that we're using for data collection could be actually uh, uh, not capturing all the information that we want or are you pretty happy that um, that, that part is, um, is working well?
2: Look, I think that... Um, what is reassuring is that we're testing lots as many as most services will be I'm sure and finding very few so i think that's a very reassuring aspect that those who come into the emergency care system uh, in victoria that uh, and australia wide um, that we're picking up on those who are covid positive we're being uh, spreading the net uh, far but staying within the within the within the guidelines but they're really are quite generous and broad for uh, flu-like illness or respiratory infections that could be COVID, and also covering off patients who have no way of answering the questions that would exclude them from having COVID or make them not at risk. So some of those patients are being tested as well. Um, it's possible, and we've seen uh, even in the public domain that uh, a that the tests may not be 100% sensitive or or specific. So what uh, what may happen? at times is there may be a positive test followed by a negative test or vice versa. So we have to be cautious to over uh, conclude on the basis of one test. Um, so keeping an eye on that data will be important going forward. But certainly who we're testing, I think, and uh, and who we're recording in our EMR, our electronic medical record, as being as having a test and why they had a test, I think that's quite complete.
0: That's good to hear. And have you had much um, uh, interest from around the Australasian emergency medicine fraternity for this? A lot of interest.
2: uh, And a lot of people, uh, it's interesting, there was particularly a lot of momentum even a month ago everywhere. Um, uh, Two things happen when there's less cases. It makes people have more time to prepare, but it makes people prepare less perhaps or prepare at a more steady fashion, which is appropriate, particularly for um, ethics committees and, and research governance. Um, so it's good that nothing is being rushed at any point. Um, we there are at least several uh, that are at the at the point um, of of progressing the opportunity to join the COVID project. So that's pretty exciting, and hopefully we'll have some more news uh, regarding that uh, at the next COVID podcast.
0: Excellent. It strikes me, as you said, Jared, that we're we're moving into a new phase, I suppose, with, um, with COVID-19 in the Australasian region. And um, in terms of the next steps, it's complicated, I think. And uh, I know, Rob, you've been doing some work with um, ASIM around there, particularly the education material and some of the communiques around that. Um, what, what are your thoughts on um, where COVID is heading in Australasia from the emergency physician's perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're probably in a, a holding pattern now to some extent, Mike, aren't we? Um, I mean, there was a huge amount of activity, um, I, I think, over the previous uh, two months to prepare uh, EDs as much as possible, um, you know, for a potential surge of patients with COVID nineteen. And as you mentioned, the, the college and many other organisations have done a lot of work to help our EDs prepare for that. For those aren't aware, um, uh, the college has a lot of really good resources, and resources on their website, asm.org.au forward slash COVID-19, um, and then includes uh, some clinical guidelines focused on Australian New Zealand um, EDs. There is some specific information about there, about how you can zone the ED, how you can adopt triage processes, um, what is optimal treatment for, for COVID patients, um, at, at the beginning of their care in the ED. Um, so I think that's a helpful resource. But what, what's not captured in there is how you kind of maintain the momentum, which is what we really need to do now. I mean, no, no one has, uh, no one knows how this is going to um, pan out. No one has a crystal ball. But the likelihood, I think, is that, you know, this is the new normal. Um, you know, for many, many months ahead. And one of the risks is that I think we become complacent, that we potentially drop standards um, in in PPE application and and use. Um, And that obviously carries, um, you know, an increased risk of um, nosocomial transition. Um, So I think we are all adjusting to the new normal. I think the flattening of the curve has given us the time to prepare. Um, And I think we now wait for the decisions of, um, you know, um, uh, public the public health uh, leaders um, across the country and politicians, of course, about what's going to happen with restrictions. I mean, to a large extent, um, what we face in a, in emergency departments and emergency care more broadly is very dependent on the public health response. Um, and as restrictions are eased, which is inevitable, um, it's possible that there will be spikes and there will be surges um, uh, and and uh, clusters, outbreaks, if you like, across the country. And so what may happen is that individual um, EDs um, uh, need to respond um, to an increased number of patients um, and that might carry on for many, many months until such time as, you know, there is a vaccine, there is herd immunity, um, there is another um, a kind of public health response um, to deal with um, community transmission. Um, so I think this is us for now, Mike. I think we've got to find ways of maintaining staff well-being. I think we've got to, maintain ways of um, adjusting to this new normal Um, and I think we've got to um, find ways of uh, not becoming complacent and making sure that we protect our patients and we protect each other as staff members.
0: Yeah and I think that's um, uh, very inspired information Robert. Uh, It's definitely difficult times. I've found myself actually being in um that state of readiness for such a period of time and having been uh head down doing so much preparation work that coming out the other side it's interesting it's an interesting feeling um and in, in some respects um looking at our colleagues and how they've managed uh, in other places it's uh we we feel for them, I think, as um as a group because we feel prepared, we feel ready and and some of that comes on the back of um, of their uh, terrible experiences. and um, and knowing what what to do in the next steps, I think someone in our organization said, well, we're also breaking new ground by what we're doing because these other countries that have gone through this have actually, they will come out in a different way um, than us will come out um, sure with less positive and uh, less positive patients and and less burden in the acute phase in our system. But potentially with this, um, burning chronic burden of, of patient presentations, and and also this burden that I don't think we ever expected, which was the burden of testing, which is a very interesting burden because within itself, that has the capacity, uh, if we're testing and isolating patients, to create major issues for our, our hospital systems, which I think were, uh, at least for me, fairly unforeseen prior to this. Uh, what are your thoughts, Jared? Yeah, absolutely.
2: What a blessing. Um, and Australia has to be thankful uh, to those that told us to prepare and told us with great urgency to prepare for this situation. So we are moving into a, uh, I'm not sure that it'll be a post-COVID phase, really. It'll be a, it'll be a chronic peri-COVID phase that we're never entirely clear uh, it's certainly not clear, if we may be clear of this particular vi- form of the virus, but things may change. So this is this is very much the new situation and I think it will continue with some fluctuations. Um, you can look at the curve uh, in recent days and it can look a little bit like the curve was about six weeks ago, just at the beginning before it, uh, uh, before it peaked. And so there's always going to be that uh, concern going forward and it's going to, so we have to organise ourselves as we are doing on how we manage the burden of testing and uh, and have a situation that we're able to pick up uh, when cases of a respiratory infection or otherwise uh, are on the move as and uh, through presentations to emergency departments is one way, certainly a very important way of picking that up. Um, so again, we're, we're very grateful, I think, to our colleagues uh, who at the end of the northern uh, winter were able to, Alert us that this was something to be reckoned with, and uh, and so everyone's taken notice, not just doctors. And so it's um, we're blessed uh, to be in this situation to prepare. Um, so it's uh, it's a small burden to have to think about how to do that forever.
1: There's one other interesting challenge that I don't think we um, predicted, and that has been the drop off of non suspected or confirmed COVID presentation, such that, you know, many of us I think are now worried that there is, uh, you know, there are groups of patients out there, particularly vulnerable patients with chronic disease who aren't presenting for emergency care. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit fearful about um, how um, decisions to delay Uh, presentations for acute care uh will impact on health outcomes for those for those groups um you know i know there's lots of people having conversations around this um and i I think it's a kind of another area of of research that we need to progress to figure out who's not presenting um why are they not presenting and what can we do as clinicians um and uh, you know, in conjunction with our public health colleagues, to encourage people who are in need of acute and emergent care to, to present to EDs. I, um, you know, I suspect I, I don't have data on this, obviously, but I suspect that one of the reasons that you know individuals, the public, are concerned that by presenting to an ED they increase their chance of exposure to COVID nineteen, and to some extent that is true. But I think we all need to work hard to reassure our patients uh, and those in the community that if you are in need of, of healthcare. That you should, um, you know, present to an ED um, because we we don't want people suffering at home, and we certainly don't want people dying in the community um, from preventable diseases that could be um, uh, addressed through a visit to an ED. Yeah,
0: I agree, Roberts. Um, it's hard to fathom where where the patients that we normally see. Go now, and and how they get their care because I know that um, community based care is is also um, at lower than normal rates, so it is it's certainly a worry and, and possibly something that we won't actually have any data on for some time. And uh, yeah, the the only way around that, as you said, is those public health messages, which I know our hospital is putting out to um, to requests uh, that people actually come into hospital if need be. And um, and aside from that, it's um it's a difficult thing to know and a difficult thing to manage, obviously. So interesting times and the paper that Jared and uh, Rob spoke about will be actually uh, live in EMA. And uh, so that will be out there for everyone to look at. Hopefully we will actually continue this COVID project and uh, continue to actually bring you information around that. And and the design of this really is um, evolving, as was mentioned in our first podcast, such that we uh, hope to flex to whatever the needs of, uh, of the uh, emergency medicine community around COVID are in terms of information sharing and data sharing. So um, look out for changes, um, minor changes in the data that we collect, and hopefully some of those will start to reflect uh, that more chronic need that we are talking about as well um, around COVID management in Australasia. Thank you very much for your time, Jared, and thank you very much for your time, Rob. Thank you, Mike,
2: and I want to thank everybody that's been involved in the project. Uh, many, uh, including the co-authors on the paper, uh, uh, people from the very much the clinical and the research sphere in uh, in emergency department. Um, so, and thanks for this opportunity today.
1: Uh, Thanks, Mike, and stay safe. That applies to you, Jared, and everyone else who's working in EDs. We, across Australia and across the world, in fact, we may have fewer COVID presentations um, than we expected, Um, but as we've discussed today, there are still challenges out there and we all need to take care of ourselves.
0: Thanks, guys. Until next time.
1: Cheers.